Hello and welcome to Romaniacs. I'm Dorian Linsky. Joining me this week are two of our 27 nation party people. From a disaster to a catastrophe, former editor of the LSE Brexit blog, now editor of the much sunnier LSE COVID-19 blog, it's Roz Taylor. Hello, Roz. Hello. <laughs> um, this week, you, you, you kept it light on the Bunker Daily and spoke to the futurist economist Danny Dawling about the concept of deceleration. He thinks the world is slowing down and apparently that is a good thing. Why? Yeah, it's quite surprising and counterintuitive. Um, he actually came out with a book called Slowdown, which was published in, I think, April this year. And you might say that was pretty prescient. But actually, he his, by his analysis, the rate at which we are inventing new things and getting better at things has actually really slowed down in the last 20 years. And you that's quite hard to believe when you consider what's happened with the internet. But it is... Yeah, apparently the case but it's a good thing he thinks because we were basically we are basically trashing the earth uh, environmentally in particular and by slowing down we can actually focus on uh, consuming less on getting our head education and healthcare sectors up to uh, imp- improving those and it's a chance to step back and try and get things better did he not consider this this uh, pandemic too much of a good thing in the slowdown stakes yeah, yeah, I did. I did challenge him on that. It sounds. It it all sounds a little bit negative, but actually, it was a really. It was quite a cheery um, interview, which I enjoyed doing because he's really optimistic about the chances of profound change in Britain. Mostly, it has to be said because of older people um, who uh, tend to vote for more reactionary causes. Let's say dying off, but um, that that he does believe that there is the chance for real change and that it's beginning to happen. Also with us is Alex Andreu. Hi, Alex. Hello. Uh, many high-profile tweeters went silent for 48 hours on Monday, uh, protest against Twitter's reaction to Wiley's anti-Semitic rant over the weekend, uh, which had everyone agog. Um, obviously, you were a pressure cooker of unexpressed hot takes <laughs> and, and lively bants. Um, do you think boycotts like this uh, are a good idea in principle, in practice, both, neither? Rarely. Uh, but not never. I think they're they're a little bit like petitions, you know. You always have to ask whether you're asking for something clear and whether you're asking the right people for it. So, like the Stolichnaya boycott by gay bars primarily hurt a Latvian producer, the CEO of which was an LGBT ally, or there was a petition in 2018 on the UK government side to make Snapchat downgrade to version 10.24.50. On this occasion, however, the demand was very clear. It was for Twitter to be quicker at responding to uh, hate speech, and the target was right. And by participating, you you could show support for your Jewish friends. So it just felt right. Yeah, I kind of I kind of hedged my bets by by not saying that I was going to be observing it, but then observing it anyway quietly. Well, it's interesting. I mean, for the first couple of hours, it felt a little bit like holding your breath, and then I I sort of realized that this was based on the notion, the narcissistic notion that I was somehow depriving the world of my witty comments, and then I calmed right down, forgot all about it, and then this morning I forgot to end the boycott until about eleven o'clock. <laughs> well, I worry that without without you and, and me and the likes of us to tell people that they're they're being wrong on the internet, they'll just continue to be wrong. Well, that that's precisely. <laughs> but, it. but but maybe maybe I overrated our power. 
Yeah, maybe. Our guest this week is the political sketch writer for The Guardian. He's seen the country go the way of his beloved Spurs in the last 12 months, following sign that good things just might start happening, crashed out of Europe and are now managed by an egomaniac. It's John Crace. <laughs> Welcome back to Romaniacs. Thank you very much for having me. Um, so Boris Johnson's new wheeze is uh, getting the nation to lose weight to fight COVID. What are his powers of persuasion at the moment? Can he convince uh, anyone to do anything? Um, well, it appears limited. Um, I mean, just this morning, uh, Boris Johnson has had the brilliant an, another wheeze, which is to put an advert in for a, uh, a daily press spokesperson, rather like the White House, where they have a daily press conference, because he's under the impression that the um, COVID uh, press conferences were a, an unmitigated success, whereas... For most of us who were forced to watch them on a daily basis, they were kind of excruciating exercises <laughs> in damage limitation. Um, so it's not quite sure what he's trying to do here. Was the revolving cast, though, at the break briefings, was that not fun for a sketch writer? There was just a, a, another day, another uh, underwhelming cabinet member. Well, yes, except they soon became uh, you soon became aware that there were a, a number that they didn't trust at all, uh, like Pretty Patel. Um, she only got two outings at all, um, and mostly it was poor Matt Hancock in the same sort of pale pink polyester tie, looking a bit desperate and trying to spin the figures to uh, his his own advantage to try and claim that he had met his own. Testing targets. Yeah, Matt, Matt Hancock's sad face is going to be one of my lasting memories of 2020. <laughs> yeah, and also, I mean, it was that he did he did change visibly over the three months or so that it went on because when he started off, he was Mister Tigger. You know, Miss, I'm really excited. I'm enthusiastic. Yes, we can do this. And by the end, he was sort of tetchy and rather monosyllabic. Um, so he was I, like Gollum. Yeah. Um, so I kind of feel that he sort of retreated. So well, well we we actually know that he was he was he was um, uh, rather sort of sanctimoniously tweeting from uh, Herefordshire where he's canoeing. So he hasn't got stuck in the south of Spain like Grant Shapps. Good old Grant Chaps, delighting the nation. Yeah. On this week's show, the Labour Party's legal settlement with whistleblowers over the BBC's Panorama documentary has sparked another blow-up between the party's new and old management. Is the dispute really about anti-Semitism and will the battle for Labour's soul ever really be over? Plus, John Crace takes us through the highlights and the low, low, low lights of Boris Johnson's first year in power. Don't forget, you can get the podcast a day early without ads when you back us on the Patreon crowdfunding platform. Plus, of course, our coveted Romaniacs merchandise. Search Patreon Romaniacs for all the details. First this week, if you've exhausted Netflix during lockdown, don't worry, the Labour Party still has drama in spades and the seasons also go on for too long. It's six-figure libel settlement to former staff members who claimed the party had failed to deal with its anti-Semitism problem on Panorama seems unlikely to draw a line under the affair. Jeremy Corbyn, remember him, immediately condemned the decision as political and claimed the party was advised it could have won the case. This caused Panorama's John Ware to raise the prospect of further legal action. Corbyn fans promptly raised money to fund Corbyn's defence, uh, currently over £300,000. Alex, um, in what world would it have been good for the Labour Party to go to court with the whistleblowers and keep anti-Semitism in the headlines for weeks? You can only look at Johnny Depp's libel suit to see how that pans out. Mm. 
Um, you know, Keir Starmer, a barrister of decades' experience and former DPP, will have a fairly good idea when a case should be pursued or dropped. So um, experience does matter. And considering he would have seen a lot more information on it than any of us, I am very happy to defer to his judgment on this one. And the fighting fund wasn't set up by Corbyn. It was set up for him uh, by fans, even though there isn't actually a case yet uh, and and he's not poor. Do you think the impulse is similar to the Corbyn was right hashtag and the kind of the obsession with the stab in the back narrative that came out of the leaked report? Like he may have lost a bunch of elections, so therefore he has to be vindicated in some other way, through some inquiry, through a lawsuit. Um, yes, and, and, and I understand that, you know. Is it not arguably what we did with the Russia report? I mean, I'm not saying influence is not important. I'm just saying the notion that it would force the referendum to be cancelled, this magical thinking. So whether right or wrong, a lot of people found hope in Corbyn. I would argue the hope became increasingly delusional, but that isn't something one can pass to another person. It's not knowledge, it's emotion. So as an internal realisation, people have to come to it on their own. Roz, a shadow minister told The Observer that this is a toxic financial time bomb, the worst kind of financial time bomb for Labour. (laughs) Is there really a risk that the party with the largest membership in Europe could be bankrupted by these legal settlements? Or is that just uh, melodrama? Well, in theory, uh, there is a risk because quite a lot of these people who are paying membership subscriptions are not actually paying very much. That was one, that's one of the reasons why there's so many members that you could join for, for relatively little. And of course, that means that you have less in the, in the coffers for a time like this. So that is undoubtedly a problem. I don't know exactly how bad things could get in this, in, in this instance, but it's a very difficult ask of your existing members let alone of anyone who might join you in the future, to say, um, please uh, cough up some more money, not to actually help Labour win the next election and not to help Labour win the mayoral and the local elections next year. We just need to pay off these these people who are suing us. That is very hard. And at this point, in another co- European country, normally what you would do is close down your existing party and start up a new one in order to indemnify yourself against these kind of claims. Um, Keir Starmer will know better than me whether that is possible, but I think from the point of view of the history of the Labour Party, it will be very, very difficult. Um, and some of the complainants say that they'll drop their legal challenges if Corbyn has the whip removed. When that rumour went round, it caused uh, apoplexy and, in some quarters, excitement. Do you think Starmer would really go that far? That, that, and I think they were, they were talking saying this would probably be in response to the um, ERHC report. You know, I can see it happening. I think Starmer has proved more ruthless than some people expected him to um, in order to get elected, really, as leader. He had to appear to be perhaps softer than he turned out to be. But we've seen 
Rebecca Long Bailey removed um, over anti uh, over anti semitism, and we've seen a very serious streak and, and, and a willingness to take that kind of measure. And I think what he would need, because he can't just do it when, you know, as, as and when he fancies it, what he would need with it would be the spur of the EHRC report and something in there that would pin it on Corbyn, which it may not actually do. I wanted to ask John, um, as a sketch writer, how does Starmer compare uh, with Corbyn? Are you, are, you, are you wistful for the Corbyn days? Is Starmer a hard target? Um, well, it's, it's an interesting one because I mean, so Starmer has always had this rather sort of loyally, uh, attitude and sort of predisposition and it made him a brilliant Brexit minister. And it's also made him, uh, a very, very good antagonist to Boris Johnson in the, um, uh prime minister's question time so i mean it hasn't actually got to a place where i've really had to kind of criticize him for anything because i think it's labor's uh tactics at the moment are to have no policies near enough i mean because it's a long way out from the next election nobody knows what's going to happen with the brexit with the coronavirus and so there is no point in uh, creating hostages to fortune at the moment. So all all Keir has to do is basically stand up and sound intelligent. I mean, I think possibly if he's made one mistake, it is uh, treating Boris Johnson like a 10-year-old, because actually Boris Johnson is more like a toddler just out of nappies. So he's probably... <laughs> So he's probably giving giving him a little bit too much respect. And there were times uh, uh, you could see that sort of Boris would make jibes and uh, Keir would just deflect them or not really respond. But then towards the end of the, se- uh, the, before, uh, the last session before recess, he got sort of stuck in and Boris was completely out of his depth, really. I mean, it was a joy to watch. I mean, I could tell uh, that the private eye is struggling to to know how to uh, satirise Starmer. And one of the criticisms of him is that he's a bit dull. Do you think at the moment that that is, uh, is a real political asset because it can read as competence and stability when we don't have much of, of either? You know, it's I suppose it's the argument people used to make for Gordon Brown at his best was that, you know, trust the boring man because, because you, he's certainly not trying to dazzle you with charisma. Um, no, I, I think, you know, you sort of underestimate Keir at your perils. I mean, he's got this sort of rather sort of plastic sheen to him that makes him look as though he will be a pushover, but he is nobody's pushover. He has got rid of Rebecca Long Bailey just like that. And I think he is slowly, you know, reclaiming the middle ground for the, for Labour. And, uh, you know, you know, he is he is sort of just doing it quietly. He's not he's not all sort of sound and fury. Um, But there is a lot of work going on beneath the surface. Alex, it's easily forgotten, but both of us uh, voted for Corbyn as leader in 2015 because we wanted more left wing policies. And and it's not that easily forgotten if you keep bringing it up. 
Well, no, I mean, I, but I, it should be mentioned um, what what could possibly go wrong. Um, but, you know, I remember then that many of his supporters saw him as a sort of placeholder, only stood for the leadership because it was his turn. Uh, and that he would just kind of make left-wingness possible again, and then someone else who was good would take over. Um, but now when you're looking at, say, like his, you know, his fighting fund and, and, and a lot of the, the, the sort of Twitter activity, protecting his personal legacy seems to be more important than the future. So do, do you think there is a contradiction between defending the Corbyn years, which would require a certain kind of behaviour and certainly would require like fighting legal battles over anti-Semitism ad nauseum, mm. and actually having influence on Starmer? Because it seems like doing the one thing, doing the first is really not going to endear you to the current leadership. So is it a choice they have to make? Um, I mean, Twitter is an odd one because I think the the more extreme voices are amplified and they, they just sound much more numerous and loud than they actually are. L- looking at the data, I mean, a member of the Labour NEC tweeted this week, uh, Gurinder Singh Josan, that the number of people who have joined because of Starmer far, far outweigh the number of people who have left because of Starmer and that black, Asian, minority ethnic membership is rising. So I think um, the online opposition is fringe. It's disproportionately noisy, but the, the, the data shows that there are many more on the left, like you and me, who change their mind about Corbyn rather than about, you know, left policies. Um, you know, Starmer won in every constituency in, in the leadership conclusively. Um, so, I mean, I, I think they overestimate the strength of feeling of the left of the party about Corbyn. I've been advised to see the very online left up, uproar, largely sort of an emotional response to a kind of trauma, particularly with younger members, that a lot of people came into politics full of idealism through Corbyn. And they're not really equipped to sort of deal with the the disappointments and compromises of going, well, you know, Starmer is a different kind of leader, but hopefully we can retain a lot of the policy platform and um, and all that. It's, it's, a, it's a complete sort of disaster. So do you actually think that a year from now, we will look back at a lot of this noise and think, oh, that didn't that didn't really mean anything. Yeah, I think we will. I think in a year's time, all this will seem pretty trivial in the context of the challenges we are facing, which are going to be huge. Um, I think it is a peril of the left at the moment, which is taking all kinds of forms. Sometimes it's um, continued allegiance, uh, desperate allegiance to Corbyn. Sometimes it's very, very, very entrenched identity politics, a retreat which which comes from the sheer pain and uh, the, the sheer pain of witnessing what has happened to the left in the last decade and the impotence that we are the left and centrist too feel uh, in the face of a right-wing populist government. And I think when you have very little power, the instinct is then to retreat and to say, well, I can't do very much, but I'm going to police my little area of the left and I'm going to make sure that these people know what I think and I'm going to do as much as I can, you know, hanging out on on Twitter and abusing people and all the rest of it because that's all I can do because I haven't actually got any real power. And you can talk about all sorts of stuff and you can keep your ideals very, very pure when they're not tested. I mean, it's like it's it's like taking a vow of celibacy and then going directly into a nunnery and seeing, you know, 
seeing no um no no men for the next 20 years you're not testing yourself you're not saying you're not realizing that in you cannot always hold on to your pure ideals in the to and fro of government in the in in the responsibilities that, that gives you and it's very comforting to fall back on these pure ideologies uh, but i think it will be something that will dissipate as the left regains a sense of mission as things like unemployment rise around employment rises and we see the true horror of the Johnson premiership. One concern, I suppose, is that one thing that Corbyn was very good at was was sort of galvanising particularly young people, uh, you know, who became on the ground organisers. There were you know, relentless door knockers and so on. But do you think that by the time the elections, some of which have been postponed, roll around next year, that, that some of that kind of energy and mission will have will yeah, come back. undoubtedly, because there's going to be mass unemployment to start with. People are going to have a lot of time to organise and they're going to have a lot of time to spend on politics and there is going to be no shortage of energy, in my view. John, finally, it is possible, um, and I hate, hate, to, uh, hate to offend any uh, listeners on the Labour right, but it is possible that if Starmer loses in 2024, the next leader uh, could be from the left, broadly, again, if not a uh, fully-fledged Corbynite, certainly from that wing of the party. What do you? What would a left-wing resurgence look like? You know, after the kind of battering of twenty nineteen, what would they have to do differently to to get back into that position, which clearly they want to do? Um, I I mean I think it's I mean I'm going to sort of duck out of this one and sort of hedge my bets because I think sort of twenty twenty four is so far, of uh, you know in the distance that we can't actually make that kind of, you know, prognosis with, with any degree of accuracy. I mean, I kind of think that, you know, John McDonnell will probably be sort of privately sort of crying into his sort of, into his tea at the moment, because when he promised, you know, that, uh, 500 billion pounds worth of spending he was told that that was sort of madcap socialist economics it was all nonsense and you know because of coronavirus that kind of money is just being sort of the the, it turns out there is a magic money tree after all um and you know it's the tories that are going to have to work out over the next three or four years how they're going to pay for this, whether they are going to raise taxes, you know, increase increase borrowing or what they're going to do about it. And, you know, I think, I mean, we're very focused, obviously, on what happens on the Labour, between the Labour right and the Labour left. But I think there is an equally interesting schism about to take place within the Tory party between those who are you know, in favour of big state economics, which is in effect in effect what's going on at the moment, and the traditional Tories, which are sort of low tax, low spend. Our guest this week is John Crace, Guardian sketch writer, author of Decline and Fail, Reading Case of Political Apocalypse, as well as columns with titles like Weirdos, Misfits and Why I Had to Check My Dog's Horoscope. 
has had a ringside seat at some of the biggest moments in recent parliamentary history and its recent transformation into a Zoom-based ghost town. Um, John, the nation has just uh, taken to the streets to celebrate the end of Bojo year one. Um, what are the standout moments for you, for, for, for good and ill? Um, well, I'm not sure that there's many for good, really. Um, I was being I, generous. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I think the, the standout moments obviously were his, first of all, his election. I mean, uh, to my shame, I can look back to January last year and when he's when he went up to a JCB factory to relaunch his career. And I poo pooed the idea. It just seemed absolutely fanciful that Boris Johnson's career could could be could be revived and that it looked like you know if Theresa May was going to go then there was going to be also you know many others in the sort of uh ready to take her place first but it I mean he he kind of maneuvered his way and pulled himself pulled it off and I can remember almost the, I, I think it was the day he became elected and then suddenly when he said I'm bringing back Dominic Cummings. And then I thought, oh, Christ, we are, this is serious after all. Um, you know, it's not going to be a joke premiership. And, but, you know, we have had since then all sorts of, you know, Dominic Cummings isn't the guru that everybody, um, uh, you know, thought that he was going to be. I mean, it was Dominic Cummings who was telling Boris to back in October last year to say, you know, Brexit by October the 31st or I'll die in a ditch over it because Cummings had predicted that, you know, if if we didn't leave by October the 31st and there was an election, then uh, the Tories would get hammered. And in fact, the reverse have happened. You know, we went to an election in December and the Tories sort of won it quite easily. Uh, well, I mean, very easily with a landslide of 80, but on the notion of just sort of get Brexit done. And, uh, but also, you know, I mean, since then, I mean, Boris has sort of gone from, well, you know, he, in January, he reached on the day after, well, the week after uh, we left the European Union, he reshuffled his cabinet. And it seemed to, you know, he'd got rid of any kind of intelligent thought. And it was a, he had designed himself a Brexit cabinet. And then we kind of slept walked into the coronavirus. And I mean, I think Boris has been badly found out by the coronavirus. He was slow to react, um, you know, and, and kept making sort of poor decisions. And, um, you know, he, he also hasn't turned out to be as good at the things that we thought he was, because he was always meant to be Boris, the great communicator. But in actual fact, sort of prime minister's questions, he's actually fairly poor. He can't, 
you know, he can't think on his feet. I mean, we always used to say that Corbyn couldn't think on his feet at PMQs, but Boris, when you know, in comparison to Keir Starmer, he can't think of his feet on his feet either. He just sort of comes back with sort of prefer, you know uh, prepared lines like uh, more flip flops than a Bournemouth beach, etc. Yeah, that's not not one for the ages. As a, as a sketch writer, you know, the, the Parliament of 2017 to 19 was, was sort of full of relentless drama, big characters, many of whom have now left. Um, and then, of course, not long after we, this new Parliament, uh, it suddenly moved online. Um, how's that? I mean, obviously, listeners will be thinking most of all during this difficult time, how is how is John's job going? Um, where is the uh, where is the action? What do you what do you what have you been able to look for even when it's all taking place um, online? Where's that kind of theatre that you that you write about? Uh, well, I think for me the theatre has become more internalised. It's become more sort of psychological de- deconstruction of people i mean obviously i mean since march uh, march the 11th i i think it was march the 11th which was rishi sunak's post uh uh brexit budget um that was the last time i was in westminster since then i've been holed up in tooting and all my sketches have had to be uh written from watching i mean every select committee every downing street briefing every session of parliament is available online so i have essentially been just sketching off the tv it's been a very weird experience and you do lose something you do i mean because for a start you can't really pick up the body language quite as well because you you can only go where the camera is going. You can't take the temperature of the room, particularly. You can't, you know, I, I would love to see in Prime Minister's questions, you know, the, the look on some of the sort of Tory backbenchers as another sort of Boris so-called gag falls flat. And, you know, whether they are trying their best to sort of make you know to to make it look like he's an outstanding leader or you know whether they are generally genuinely wowed by him you do of course gain access to people's backgrounds like liz truss giving evidence to a select committee uh, last week with a coffin lid in the background um but <laughs> But I digress. Um, when Johnson took over, you wrote a sort of eulogy for Chris Grayling's career. Um, did you did you think you were having some sort of stress dream when they set him up for the Commons Intelligence Committee gig? And is he the only man that could cock that up? That was that was extraordinary. I really thought that. When, when sort of he was booted out of the cabinet, that was the last we were going to hear from him. And um, uh, I mean, the idea that sort of Chris Grayling is the only person in the Commons who wouldn't have the intelligence to realise that there was a, pl- a plot against him. I mean, he... <laughs> He was, you know, the the leader of an intelligence committee with no intelligence and also the only sort of uh, MP capable of losing a rigged ballot. (laughs) Um, And you could say, you know, you could 
you see, you know, I mean, you could argue that sort of Boris sort of got it wrong because he he kind of underestimated Julian Lewis's uh, commitment to his own career and his own profile. And yeah. Julian Lewis clearly promised the three members of the Labour Party and the one SMP uh, MP that you know if they if they voted for him he would publish the Russia report and as we saw last week there actually was something in the Russia report to hide you know it wasn't the damp squib that we'd been told but mm. I'm still very much in favour of Chris Grayling's career and I'm I keep trying to revive it and in fact <laughs> in in my sketch today I'm making a bid for him to be uh, the new number ten spokesperson. Uh, um, to take the sort of press conferences because, I mean, this man has a a long history of crisis mismanagement and there is nobody, you know, with more experience uh, of things going wrong. And also, you know, he would be very good at apologising for accidentally having got Boris Johnson the sack. Um, You know... This this ad to hire someone to take the point on press briefings, you know what you were saying before that some of the things we thought Boris Johnson might be good at, he has actually turned out not to be so good at. Is the, is the hiring of that person seems to me an admission that um, basically people don't like anyone in this cabinet um, that, that could be put on point. What's happened to Brand Boris since he actually became Prime Minister? And where does he go next? Well, I don't know, is the answer. I mean, the thing is that it was always all about Boris. I mean, even when... I mean, we had that wonderful moment during the... uh, Actually, I shouldn't say wonderful moment, because that sounds sort of wrong. But when... Boris was in it was in hospital, and Dominic Raab was notionally leading the country. Uh, it was clear that that Dominic Raab had absolutely no idea what was going on. Uh, I watched a, a, and sketched one press briefing where he said, "Though Boris is up, sitting up in bed in, and he's absolutely fine. He's running the country. Everything's fine." And then somebody said, when did you last speak to him? And he said, uh, two days ago. And and then it turned out an hour later that Boris was about had just been admitted into intensive care. And so it was sort of clear that uh, Dominic Robb had no more idea of what was really going on than the rest of us. I mean, Boris's brand, I, I think it has been tarnished. I mean, I think people have seen through him a bit. Whether he can revive it or not, I don't know. It seems incredible to think that he might be able to revive it. But I mean, one, I, you know, people like me have written off Boris in the past at, and got it wrong. But I just don't see how you square mass unemployment, which is probably going to start sort of coming through when the furlough scheme ends. Uh, an ongoing coronavirus, which looks like it's going to be running through till the middle of next year, and also the possibility of a no-deal Brexit. I mean, that seems feels like pain upon pain upon pain. 
And mm. Boris is essentially, you know, he likes people to feel good. He wants them to feel good about themselves. If the country is, you know, most people feel like they're on their knees, then then Boris's sort of buffoonish persona, I don't think plays out at all well. John, how much are journalists actually to blame for Boris Johnson? I mean, clearly he's he was a journalist, arguably in some ways still is, and Michael Gove, you know, the whole coterie. It, it's it's difficult. It's difficult, I think, for people who haven't been journalists to understand the sheer fascination that Johnson exerts among journalists as one of their member who has been extremely successful as a columnist and then has made it to the to the top job i mean what do you, do you think there was there was that kind of element in among journalists that thought my god you know it, he might he might be a disaster but let's just see what it's like because it's really exciting one of us making it to the top job is that going on do you think um i think a bit i mean i uh I, but i i think it was more that a lot of newspapers with a vested interest in brexit suddenly looked round and boris was the only credible candidate for actually forcing it through um i you know people are often saying oh well michael goves in the background you know he's he's secretly sort of pulling the strings well i don't think i don't think he is and i because i don't think the country would go you know i mean either tory party has twice had an opportunity to vote for michael gove as leader and twice has rejected him and so i i think there was very much a case of Boris is the only person who can deliver Brexit. And I think, uh, you know, newspapers, you know, editors, proprietors, I think there was a lot of feeling of, you know, we've got to rally round him. He is the man who can do it. And you recalled that when journalists were still allowed into Downing Street, the younger ones were less serious about using the hand sanitizer that the government provided. Did did the lobby underestimate how serious COVID would be? Were they taken by surprise as well? Uh, I think the simple answer is yes. I mean, I couldn't believe it when, because I mean, in one of the last press conferences that I went to, uh, I kind of there was hand sanitizer and I was sort of using it and no bit loads of other people just sort of thought I was being kind of quirky and a bit hypochondriacal. But then, I mean, both things are true. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, But uh, I mean, I took, I took a view. I went into lockdown about a week or 10 days before the government went into lockdown. I took a view that I wasn't going to go into uh, Westminster because I just felt it was uh, a vector of trans- potential transmission. And it turns out to have been true because cause, cause ju- even in the Guardian office in, uh, in Westminster, three out of the eight people had, uh, did catch coronavirus. You know, and I keep hearing of loads of other journalists who stuck it out much later, who, who, who also got coronavirus. I mean, thankfully, none of them had to be. Uh, well, one Theo Usherwood from El, uh, uh, 
I think it's LBC. Uh, he he was admitted to hospital, but I think yeah, thankfully he was the only serious uh, uh, casualty. Um, but I yeah, I I do think there was a feeling that people were underestimating it, and they did, and they wanted to be around while the, the, you know there was this big story playing out. Hello, it's Andrew Harrison, the producer here. If you like Romaniacs, you will love The Bunker. Every Wednesday, the Romaniacs regulars plus new guests get together for a no-holds-barred political roundtable about anything and everything except Brexit. What we are definitely living through is a golden age of incompetence. It is a season of utter insanity and lunacy in the United States. On Mondays, Tuesdays, Thursdays and Fridays, there's The Bunker Daily with one-to-ones and explainers on everything from the economy to the the arts, culture, and even food. Italians are extravagant about food, but never wasteful. That's what I like. We have to create a kinder, gentler world where everyone has the basic decencies of life. That's The Bunker, with all your favourites from Romaniacs and more. Get it wherever you get your podcasts. Now it's time for To The Barricades. Every week, one of our regulars picks a course for Romaniacs listeners to get behind. This week, it's Ros Taylor's turn. This is quite an easy one. A few weeks ago, I was talking to the CEO of the MS Trust, and he told me about just how badly the charity was doing. Now, there's a specific reason why charities are doing very, very badly at the moment, and it's that they cannot raise funds easily. All the things that you would normally do, like London Marathon, fun runs, coffee mornings, all this stuff has been killed by COVID and the social distancing rules. And that basically means that it's very, very hard for them to raise money and also they can't get their specific calls across because the news agenda is so incredibly dominated by covid so this is really a plea that if you were donating to a charity and don't make it the rspb or something or donkey charity because you know good though lovely though those are the words are probably not too badly off right now it's the humans <laughs> often that we need to be worrying about if you were donating to a charity beforehand and if you were in the habit of giving or if you normally would be sponsoring someone or relative who was running the london marathon or something give that money if you can and i know that it's difficult at the moment for a lot of people with the uncertainty about jobs give that money if you can anyway because the charity is really really needed so your cause is humans yeah, my cause is humans. Um, I, I do. I mean, also, uh, of course, things like Greenpeace and Friends of the Earth and all those 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 uh, long standing long standing uh, topics, which are incredibly important, but perhaps not things that British people tend to donate to in a kind of automatic way, like the RSPB, um, which which. I don't think is suffering quite as much because the work that it does is not needed more urgently as a result of coronavirus. The donkey gravy train came to a close. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a callous bitch, aren't I? I just don't care about those donkeys. (laughs) Kiss Starmer's parents will look after them. Finally this week, both sides are now saying that they're running out of major disagreements in the Brexit negotiations, with Michel Barnier predicting an exciting, low-quality, low-profile deal. Um, Alex, are we heading towards Britain caving in and uh, sort of remixing it to look like a victory again? Yes, is the short answer. You want the long answer? Um, It's not a particularly long answer, but it's a longer one than yes. 
If you think through the remaining issues, which both sides have identified as the level playing field and fishing, the level playing field will never uh, be an issue on which the EU caves, um, because it's the basis of uh, a membership of the single market. Uh, it's not something on which they can cave in, because it will cause problems down the line. Once you accept that there needs to be some kind of level playing field provisions, then it becomes blindingly obvious that you need an arbitration mechanism for when the parties disagree on whether they've been breached or not. I mean, you can call that the European Court of Justice, or you can invent a, a, a new thing and call it Susan, but it will be there because it can't, you know, you can't have common standards unless you have someone deciding when you disagree on the standards. That leaves fishing. So I think what we're heading towards is basically the UK caving in on um, uh, uh, the level playing field provisions and an arbitration mechanism for those, and the EU making some concessions in fishing that they the UK can then claim as a victory. And lo and behold, Boris Johnson will come back with a 10-page deal and wave it around and say, see, I told you, you doubters, um, that I could get one. And the EU has apparently acknowledged that we won't accept the state aid rules, but we have to agree to a shared philosophy on subsidies going forward. Although mm. We won't tell Brussels exactly how that might work. Do you do you think there are going to be things in the deal which are kind of which are sort of sufficiently fudged that that actually in order to get a deal that both sides are kind of accepting that some of this stuff is probably going to be fine tuned later? I you see I thought that was a really important bit of the Michel Barnier uh, press conference after the latest round of negotiations and it wasn't really picked up a lot. He said. The problem for us at the moment is like in areas like state aid rules, and his words was, we have no visibility. And he went on to explain that we, we genuinely don't know what kind of government this will be. So the problem for the EU27 is that they can't glean whether Johnson will turn out to be a sort of low regulation um, offshore Singapore for Europe type of uh, uh, policy or whether he's going to largely stick to the rules. And I think that is a big, big problem for them. So what, what Barney was saying effectively when he said that is that we think this particular government and cabinet are very unpredictable and very inconsistent. There's not an ideological core that we can identify that will let us determine what the risk is going forward. And that is a, you know, that, that's a really chunky observation from our former partners. And finally, Roz, your colleagues at the LSE um, have released research showing that Brexit will hit areas that were otherwise largely unscathed by the COVID lockdown. So this isn't the sort of the double whammy areas. This is ones that... that um, that are fine so far, but won't be. Um, what are those areas? 
Uh, it's quite a few as a whole. It's it's very um it's an interesting piece of research because there's been a lot of predictions about Brexit uh Brexit's effect on the economy, but those have all been, if you like, thrown up in the air by COVID nineteen as well, and what that does to the existing strength of industries as we go into Brexit. So there are some things. I mean, hotels, you know, hit incredibly hard by COVID nineteen, uh, not expected to be hit so hard at all by Brexit necessarily. There are other things as well that that uh, like chemicals where uh, they've also been hit quite hard and will also be hit quite hard by Brexit as well. So that it's, it, it varies a lot, a lot by sector. But fundamentally, the message here is that nearly every area of the economy is going to be pretty much screwed by Brexit. I'm looking at the list here and the ones that come out a bit better are basic metals and fabricated metal, um, which is going to hold on, water transport and wood and wood products. Now those and a bit of agriculture, forestry and fishing, those should generally be all right. But some of those have been hit quite hard by COVID. So you're getting a doubling and magnifying effect so what's been hit, what hasn't been hit by COVID, but will be hit by Brexit? It's almost the, the inverse of, of hotels. One of the biggest ones is mining and quarrying, which actually went up nearly 33% between April and June 2020, but it will take a hit of 12.5% uh, for Brexit. So that's, that's one that you might not have thought of, and it's not immediately obvious that will be hit. We've reached the end of the show, which means it's time for the Brexit bridge. John Crace, uh, what should we place on the bridge back to Europe? Um, I would like to take this question. I don't know if any other one has, anyone else has done this. I would like to do it, be completely literal about this and actually give Europe the Boris Bridge between Northern Ireland and Scotland, just so that there is... Uh, a means from you could so you could drive from the Republic of Ireland in Europe the whole way into the UK. I think it would be a nice symbolic gesture. That's brilliant. We like that. We've added a bridge to the bridge, and that's the show. Thank you to Alex. Thank you, Ros Taylor. Thank you, and John Crace. Thank you very much for having me. Now it's time for our theme song, "Demon Is a Monster" by Corner Shop, and an impeccably red list of our latest Patreon backers. Hello from me, and thanks to Van Luu, Lindsay Evans, Deirdre, Amit Cotter, and Heather Gibson. Thanks for backing us to Tommaso V, Donna Marsh, Villa Curran, Phil, and Sophie Bassey. And thanks for me to Struan McBee, James Hawke, Gareth Priest, Paul Gillian, and Harry Keithley. Stay safe, and we'll see you next week. Romanians was presented by Dorian Linsky with Ross Taylor and Alex Andre. Audio production and scripting was by me, Alex Reese. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producer was Jacob Archbold. And Romaniacs is a Podmasters production.